If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6 today. If you access those on your phones or in a paper Bible, if you're not familiar with looking up passages, there will also be uh, most of them on the screen behind me this morning. Well, we are coming to the final uh, installment of our series uh, called United, where we have been working through the book of Ephesians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to this church to uh, to tell them basically how to live a united life, how to live united with God, with one another, and even with whatever circumstances they face. And it has been this amazing picture that Paul has laid out for us. The first three chapters have been this focus of being united with God, understanding our salvation and our standing in Christ, that we are made whole, we are made new. There is nothing that God cannot overcome in our life. There is no sin too great for his grace. He painted this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace and God's salvation and how we are reconciled to him. And now in the last three chapters, Paul has been painting this picture of how you and I move in our lives to let this gospel play out. So it's not just something that we know, something that we believe. It is actually something that impacts our life and it impacts how we dance with God. We talked about it. It talks about how we climb, not the ladder of success, but climb to get a, a better perspective on things and to see things the way God sees them through a strong mind, not a not a weak mind. And and then last week we talked about building relationships with each other and pouring in and looking at different relationships like a husband and wife and a worker and a boss and a father and a mother and a child and seeing how we can learn from these relationships to live united. And so Paul has painted this masterpiece and he has set it before us. It is literally if we take these passages up until Ephesians 6.10, it's something we can just look at and examine and see how beautiful this picture is. But in these last few verses of Ephesians, Paul kind of takes it to the next level. And Paul says, let's really talk about how this plays out, not just in real life, but in the tragedies of life, in the difficulties of life. And before we jump into the scripture today, I want to lay some groundwork to help you better understand the full circumstances of the people that are receiving this letter. So this letter was written to a network of churches that were located in what we would know today as kind of Western Turkey, on the coast of Western Turkey. And it was a city that was very important to the Roman Empire, it was a major port for trade and for culture. And the city was very multicultural and very religiously pluralistic. And while the Christian faith was growing in Ephesus in this city, uh, it is also not being accepted uh, in the overall Roman Empire. And actually at this time, Emperor Nero had just come into power, power, and Nero is known as one of the most horrific persecutors of Christians in all of history. This is not a good place or a good time to be a Christian. So his letter is basically sent to a group of believers that are living as an oppressed minority. Announcing that you were a Christian in any overt manner in that city could lead to your imprisonment or your death. Paul hasn't been writing this letter to a group of believers that were the dominant force in culture, like in Jerusalem. Instead, he's writing this to a, in a minority and a minority that is oppressed in their culture. I want you to consider the implications of this for just a moment. For as Paul has written this letter to this oppressed minority about living in unity with God, others, and whatever circumstance comes their way. 
Catch this for a minute. He is writing this letter to people that we would argue have every right to take a stand against the impression of themselves and their neighbors. They have every right to stand up against the government. He's writing this to a group of people that we would say need to stand up for their rights and make their voices heard. But that the last thing that we would be telling them is how to get along with the current lives and how to abide in their situations. We would be telling them how to make changes to the system, how to fight against the government, or at the very least try to escape this oppression and persecution and go somewhere else. That's what we would be saying. But Paul does the exact opposite in these last 10 verses here. He doesn't say, take what I've taught you, take what you've learned about salvation and unity and get out of your bad situation. Run from it. Escape it. Instead, he says, learn to live in it. Learn to endure. This letter isn't a letter about social justice. It isn't a letter about overthrowing an unrighteous regime or demanding personal and religious liberties. It is a letter about enduring, about sustaining, about overcoming even the harshest of circumstances and still finding true pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. And that is what these last few verses focus on. And again, before we jump into that, I do want to make a couple of things very clear. The Bible as a whole, the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Paul are very clear about oppression of other people. And here's what I can tell you. One is it should never be tolerated. But they also teach this, is that it can be endured. If you find yourself in a position of influence, power, or oversight, or if you are in a, at very least not living under oppression, and you have a moral and theological obligation to stand for those that are being oppressed. This is not an option. It's not a calling for some of us. As a follower of Christ, if you and I see injustice being perpetrated upon other people, any fellow human being, no matter whether they're a believer or not, any fellow human being, it is our call to act, to not act because of fear or apathy or for any other reason, listen to this, is literally acting in opposition to the gospel. Choosing not to act, choosing not to stand for those that are experiencing injustice is anti-gospel. The gospel came for freedom. The gospel came for hope. It does not mean that we can right every wrong. It does not mean that we can rescue every person. But if it is within our power, within our ability to stand and make the plight of the oppressed known, we are called to do that. Psalm 72, 4 says this, May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. We are called to stand alongside Christ in this. Most of us in here, I would venture, live not typically oppressed. We're free to go. We're free to move. We're free to do what we want to do. And we sometimes insulate ourselves and insulate our lives from those that are oppressed. And just thinking, as long as I don't know about it, as long as I'm maybe blind to it, as long as I don't engage with it, I'm not educated on it, I'm not responsible. And that's not what God says. This letter that Paul is writing, even though he's writing to the oppressed, is a reminder to those of us who are not currently oppressed to be the champion for those that are, to stand beside them. For those of you or any time that we may find ourselves in an oppressive environment, whether it's through a government system or even through a, a work or through a, a relationship where you are being oppressed, 
I want to challenge you to know that you can endure through a deep dependence upon God and his provision for your soul. Now, let me be very clear and forthright. This is not easy, and it is not what God designed for you. Never let anybody tell you that living in an impressed environment in a relationship, work, or through a system of government or system of control, living oppressed is not what God designed for you. It's not what he wanted for you. But even in that, he gives you the ability to endure. There's no government system in the world that has found a way to eliminate oppression. No level of economic wealth has eliminated oppression. No amount of charitable giving has eliminated oppression. And I wish that I could stand here before you today and tell you that if you find yourself in an oppressive situation, that one day it will get better and one day things will change. But that may not be the truth. You may live your entire life in oppression, but you can endure. You can stand, I can stand here today and tell you that God's greatest gift for you may not be deliverance, but endurance. And that's a hard thing to take in. It's a difficult truth to put our hands around, but this is what Paul is teaching us today. Even in the most oppressed situation, God is present. His hope is most powerful to those that are hopeless. His love is most impactful to the unloved. His mercy is most meaningful to those who are without justice. Look beyond the situation and find that you can endure through Christ. Matthew 5.10 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So all this brings me to a question. We're talking about oppression this morning, which is such a lovely, bright uh, topic on this Sunday morning, but it's something we see every day. It makes me ask this question, what is oppression? Am I, am I just having a bad day? Are things not going my way, or am I actually experiencing oppression? Is that man just angry and acting out? Is, is that person justified in their resentment toward other people? Should those in authority be given the benefit of doubt? Or what am I witnessing is that oppression? And I believe when you look at biblical examples of oppression throughout the Bible, you see that oppression is, is five clear things. Oppression is, first, oppression is first of all this. It is the removal of situational control in someone's life. It's when a person has no control over certain situations in their life. They don't have the freedom to say yes or no. It's the control is taken away. That is part of oppression. But oppression is also the removal of personal identity. It's when a person is not known individually, but they're known as a property or part of a categorized group to accomplish a specific task. You look at a person, you don't see them you see them as part of a group and you take away their individuality. It's also the removal of equal opportunity. It's when a person has an enforced restraint or purposefully withheld an advantage to keep them behind. It's not doing it without consequence. It's choosing to hold people back, to hold a person or a group of people back, to hinder them, to make them start at a disadvantage. It's the removal of equal opportunity. It's also the removal of ideological development, which means this, a person is punished or are not given the opportunity to come up with their own ideas, to develop ideas, to, to put ideas out into the system, to, to bring change, to speak truth. Things that would change their situation or eliminate their oppression, those views are viewed as threats and they're held back. 
It's also finally the removal of the innate worth or value found in who we are created as in people in the image of God. A person's value, if they're being oppressed, isn't only what they can add to others, not in who they are or what they were created to be. And I would imagine at some point in our lives, each of us have experienced some level of maybe one, two, some of those. Maybe at some point in your life, you have been you have been oppressed in all of these. Well, the church in Ephesians is literally dealing with all of these issues. As Christians, they are losing control of their situation. Their personal identity is being taken away, and they're just viewing it as a threat to the current culture. They're, they're being withheld equal opportunity. They don't have the same value or the same ability to compete in the marketplace as other people do. They aren't allowed to bring their ideas to the table and their worth is being devalued because of the faith that they have. They're dealing with all of this. And it is with this backdrop that Paul has written this letter and is now bringing it to this powerful conclusion. In these last few verses of Ephesians, Paul framed this thought for living a united life in spite of being an oppressed minority. Not how do you do this when things are going well, but how do you do this when your life is really under the foot of somebody else. When you are under the control, not just things are going bad, but when people are bringing it to you, when people are putting it on you, how do you do that? Paul doesn't preach comfort, he doesn't preach rebellion, and he doesn't even preach survival. Instead, he challenges to be more concerned about changing our perspective instead of changing our circumstances. Look with me at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. And we'll start to see how Paul does this. He says, finally. So he's starting this. He's like, look, I painted this picture. Take a look at it and understand this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In these four verses here, Paul gives us four elements of endurance that we can put our hands on. If you're being oppressed, if you're seeing oppression, if you know someone who is dealing with oppression, these are the handles of endurance that they can hold on to. And the first one is this in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The first handle is strength. The first element of endurance is this idea to be strong. Now, this isn't about physical or emotional strength. It's not mustering up more strength. It's not hitting the gym more so that you can fight harder. That's not the kind of strength that Paul is talking about here. It's not getting stronger just to make it through the day. That kind of strength will sap so quickly. If you are if you're being oppressed emotionally and you just try to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna not let this bother me and it just keeps coming, that strength will sap. So what strength is he talking about? This strength comes from the Lord. This is a strength when we say, I cannot endure on my own. I need something beyond me. I need a hope outside 
of myself. This strength is actually learning to rest in the strength of the one who created you, in the strength of the one who will protect you, in the strength of the one who will provide for you. If you try to walk through an oppressive situation on your own strength, it will defeat you. But when you rest in the strength of the Lord and let his strength flow through your life, then we stop asking why. And we maybe even stop looking for a way of escape. And we understand, even in the worst situation, experience the closeness of the presence of the one who loves me the most is more meaningful than anything I'm going through in this moment. So we pray for strength. The first handle is strength. The second handle that he says here is fortitude. In in verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Fortitude is the ability to withstand repeated attacks, attacks that hit you at the hardest and at the most vulnerable areas. It isn't the ability to dodge or deflect It's the ability to take a hit, hold tight, and face it again. Paul knows that there are times that we cannot escape. And in these times, when people are trying to get us to respond and to react certain ways, he says to stand. You know this. You experience this in your life. Somebody's doing something to you. They're goading you on so that you'll react in a way that will justify their actions to you. If you respond this way, then I can say, look, that's why you you just proved it. You are who you are. And that's what the schemes of Satan are. That's what the schemes of the evil ones are. They're trying to hit you, hit you in such a way that you'll just respond and try to justify their actions. And Paul says, take the hit, hold tight, stay steady. We don't give into their schemes and become what they're trying to make us to be. It's the ability to believe And trust, not just rest in God, but now to trust for him to act on your behalf. Not you to act, but for him to act on your behalf. The third handle that we can grab onto is found in verse 12, and it's the handle of insight. For it says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Insight, and this one's key to me, is the ability to understand that while the attack may be coming from persons standing right in front of me, the ultimate source of the attack is the author of all evil. It does not excuse their behavior. It does not warrant their behavior. It's not a reason to say we shouldn't stand against it. But Satan's desire is for this world to be reigned by evil for evil to reign in this world, and for you to experience the most heartache, pain, and persecution that he can dish out to you. And the biggest way for him to spread evil is to have those that have experienced evil to feel like they have the right to recuperate, to reciprocate that evil upon other people. Say, it has been done evil to me, now I will do evil to other people. And insight is being able to see that and stopping evil in its tracks, not propagating it, not continuing it, but stopping it in its tracks. It keeps it from reproducing. And while this doesn't excuse others, what it does is this. It ends their power to produce more evil because you're not letting it reproduce in your life. This is hard. This is difficult. 
this is a challenge to be able to say, I have, I have every right. Look at what they have done to me. Look at the pain that they have caused me or this group of people. And now I have the upper hand. Now I have a way to reciprocate. Why shouldn't I make them feel the same way I did? Why shouldn't I bring pain even more so than what I experienced into them? And while may, that may sound in earthly terms justifiable, we really then become the tools of Satan when we do that. Because what are we propagating? We're propagating evil. We're spreading evil. And insight, Paul says, the ability to endure is to say it stops with me. The fourth thing is in verse 13, and it's stamina. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Stamina is the power behind endurance. It is the ability to not grow weary while exercising strength. It is the ability to stand with fortitude and with insight. Paul says for us to withstand this, that we must use the armor that God gives us. To keep doing good, to not repay evil with evil comes from God. Having stamina is to not let others steal your hope and your joy and your peace and your love. Stamina is to not turn your thoughts sour and bitter. Stamina is to shed the ugliness of oppression in your life and to live as free people under the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ no matter your circumstance. Stamina is to have a, a long outlook an eternal outlook that helps us endure these present trials and tribulations. So these are four handles that Paul teaches us here. It says, have the strength of the Lord, rest in him, have the fortitude to, to take the attack over and over again. Stand with insight and see what Satan is actually trying to do and have the stamina, have the strength and the ability to endure. This isn't a formula for a better life or an even easier life. This isn't a four ways to overcome oppression. That isn't always an option. Instead, this is Paul's gift to those stuck in oppression. I have no doubt that Paul had it within his power to rescue those in the church of Ephesus. He would have done it immediately, but it wasn't within his power. Instead, he gave them an even greater gift. He gave them a formula for endurance how to remain faithful, fruitful, and fervent in their faith. And you may be sitting here going, okay, who's Paul to write this, right? I mean, it's great that he can speak about this, but isn't Paul part of the privileged class, a, a Roman citizen, a, a man who has the means to travel around the known world preaching the gospel? Isn't he a part of the majority culture There's the one propagating this type of oppression? Maybe he once was, but no longer. Paul is actually writing this letter from prison. He himself has been in prison for his faith. He is enduring beatings. He has lost his financial stability. He has experienced personal persecution and threats of death. He's literally been beaten within an inch of his life. He is chained in a small cell, probably no larger than a New York City apartment uh, closet. I mean, he's literally in a tiny, dark place. He's in total darkness, except for a small candlelight. He has no possessions, no clothes. He's only given a few pieces of parchment to write on because the Roman soldiers prefer their inmates to remain occupied rather than just hear them crying out for mercy and relief all the time. 
He's being fed just enough to keep him alive to face his upcoming trial. The guards do nothing to clean his cell or remove any waste. He wasn't allowed to sleep for long periods of time just so that they would create a more heavy, dark place for him. No rest. Imagine for days on end being woken up every 30, 40 minutes and not ever being able to fully rest. He was in complete discomfort. He had no hope of escape or relief. Every day his captors and guards would mock him and humiliate him in any way possible. This is where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He isn't talking about those in oppression from a non-oppressed state. He isn't writing this from his country home in Jerusalem where he's being served wine and cheese. He is deep in oppression. He is writing this from a perspective that the people in Ephesus would understand. And he is sharing it with the church and he is sharing it with you and I how he learned to endure, to find strength, fortitude, and insight and stamina in spite of his circumstances. Imagine standing before a church today reading this letter knowing that that's the environment, that it came from Paul chained to a wall in a small closet, dark, nasty, smelly, starving. And he says, endure. I can. I found hope even in this darkest place. As powerful, though, as verse 10 and 13 are, what Paul does in the next few verses is even more remarkable. He takes the objects of his own oppression, the tools those in power have used to remove his freedom, his identity, his opportunity, his worth, and he has turned those objects of oppression into tools of freedom. Throughout this passage, Paul uses the illustration of armor to describe how you and I should find strength. He says, put on the full armor. Put it on. He says it. He's already told us a couple of times, put on the armor of God. Now, I want you to understand, armor is not something that a follower of Christ would typically own. Most people didn't have a coat of arms and armor in their closet. And when it was time to head out for the day, they'd throw on armor. So it's foreign to them for them to own armor. There were really only one type of people who owned armor in those days, and it was the Roman guards, the Roman army. And they would they understood the term armor, but it was viewed as a symbol of power and control. Armor was actually a symbol of oppression. The Roman army and the Roman armor was the epitome of Paul's oppression. Yet he takes this primary image as of, of his oppression and he redeems it through the power of the gospel. He takes the image of a Roman soldier an image that everyone who is reading this letter would know, an image that would bring dread, despair, and fear into the hearts of most everyone. And he says, we should find our hope in armor. Not the Roman armor, but God's armor. This is powerful. This is life-changing. Paul is saying, no matter your circumstance, no matter your situation in life, no longer live in fear of the power of man. God has an armor that is more powerful than the armor of those that are viewed as the most powerful in the world. An armor that will be your defender and protector if you choose to wear it. Paul turned the ultimate symbol of despair and he took away its power and turned it into hope. Look at verse 14 through 17. It says this, Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate 
of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel by peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's quickly look as we close with these six pieces and what how they bring us hope. These six elements of hope. The first is the belt of truth. Just like a belt, truth holds everything together. I was out the other day and I literally forgot to put a belt on. And all day I'm, you know, doing this, the most uncomfortable feeling in the world. I'm like, stay up. You know, I was like, I wanted to go buy a belt. But belt kind of holds everything together. Sometimes it holds things in too, you know. But a belt, when they would see it, God was saying, look, don't forget the truth that I've spoken to you. Don't forget that the, my promises are true and unwavering. He will not forget you, forget you in your time of need. He will not forsake you in your times of sorrow. And he will not abandon you in the darkest of places. When you look at a soldier's belt, remember the promises of God that hold all things together in your life. And he said the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14. Now, a breastplate protects the most vulnerable, important parts of your body. But it was also worn as a status symbol, a show of importance. And Paul says, let your breastplate be righteousness. Let standing for truth be what protects you. Let your steadfastness and the obedience to the teachings of Christ be what you are known for. When you look at a soldier's breastplate, remember that your righteousness is more powerful than any evil attack that can come your way. You're guarded. The righteousness that when we stand with God guards our heart and sets us apart breastplate of righteousness then a soldier's shoes the shoes of peace in verse 15 the soldier's shoes allowed them to march long distances to to run with speed toward their enemies they were heavy strapped on they were heavy things you could hear roman soldiers coming when they came as a group the sound was like thunder and it was an ominous sound you would hear that sound coming down the street and dread would come your way. But Paul says this, now let the sound of you approaching, let the sound of your feet coming bring peace and good news. When you see and hear the sound of approaching soldiers, remember that there is more power in peace than there is in fear and strife. And even though your shoes may not make as much noise, they make a larger impact when you bring peace and good news instead of fear and dread. The shield of faith in verse 16, a, a Roman shield protected against both close and ranged attacks and when locked together with one another, it formed an almost impenetrable force. As they would lock arms and lock shields, they could almost knock over and, and thwart any attack. And Paul is telling us to rely on others caught in the same oppression and to stand with those caught and oppression that they remember when you see a shield a roman carrying a shield remember that you have a family of faith that is standing beside you you are not alone there are those praying for you those are standing with you in that moment you may feel completely alone but remember when you see that shield 
you're not alone. Then he says, the helmet of salvation. The helmet allowed you to take literally a lethal blow to the head and survive. And God's salvation is the same for us. Paul reminds us that even the most harmful and fatal blow from the enemy cannot pierce the salvation that God has provided for you and I. Even in death, hear this, even in the worst, even in death, we are victorious. Death no longer has a sting. There is no victory in the grave. The biggest attack that can be made on this earth simply bounces off of our eternal salvation, the helmet of salvation. And finally, he says, the sword of the Spirit. The final element is as much armor, but a means of attack and defense. And Paul compares the Roman sword to the Word of God. And he is reminding us to let God's Word be what we fight with. Let its words bring power, not our own words. Not words of hatred, anger, and resentment, but words of truth. Words that make peace and justice known. Let God's truth be your ultimate weapon. Do you see what he did here? He took a sight that these people would see every day. A Roman soldier. A sight that before this would bring dread and fear. And he took away its power. With the gospel, he took away its power. I don't know what's bringing you oppression. I don't know where you've experienced it. I don't know where you're seeing other people experience it. But God can transform any tool of oppression into an element of hope. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is not, one day I'll get to heaven. One day I'll be out of this. That's part of it. That's a piece of it. But the gospel brings hope, even in the darkest of places. The last thing Paul tells us to do, and I don't want to end without this, is to pray. In verses 18 and 20, listen to this. It says this, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Oh, what a request from Paul. Pray for one another. But pray for me as I'm chained in this dark cell, that even in this darkest, damp place, I would have the ability to be an ambassador for the gospel. He tells us to pray constantly. He tells us when we're in oppression or we see people in oppression, pray for deliverance. He says, don't stop praying for yourself, but also pray for others in oppression. He says, pray for the right words to say to those that are oppressing you. Pray for the right actions to respond to those that are oppressing you. And most importantly, pray for opportunities for the gospel to be made known through your oppression. My question for you today is this. These are tough questions. Are you willing to endure oppression for the advancement of the gospel? Would you be willing to stay in oppression if it meant the gospel could be advanced? That's what Paul's prayer was. He said, make me an ambassador in chains. That's a crazy prayer. This is a tough question. This is one I don't know that I can answer and say yes to. 
But I do know this, the most powerful way to show the true nature of the gospel is to demonstrate hope and oppression, not by exercising power through domination. The gospel has always advanced and has always grown when it's been oppressed. When the people have been oppressed, the gospel has flourished. I have no desire for anyone in here to be oppressed. But there is more influence found in the life of one oppressed person who overcomes the hate, prejudice, and injustice in their life with the power of the gospel than there is in any man-made position of power in this world. There's more power in a faithfully oppressed person, a more influence than in any man-made position. The second question is this, and it's for those of us who may not be in oppression, and it's this, are you willing to fight against oppression in the name of the gospel? The true joy of salvation is not reveling in the blessings that we did not earn, but instead it is in using those blessings to lift the oppression and injustice leveled against other men, women, and children that are caught in a system of oppression. Our mutual victory, the victory that Paul talks about here, is not defeating our enemy. It's not extracting revenge on our enemy. It may not be even escaping from our current step of oppression. The mutual victory we have here is advancing the gospel in a united way, no matter what circumstance we face. Songs that we sang this morning were all around this theme. God of deliverance, he is the light. God is mighty to save. Our God is great. These are not salvation. The the greatness of our God is not demonstrated by where we sit circumstantially, but how we endure and how we remain faithful no matter the circumstance. Let's pray together.